You're listening to the Sourced Property Podcast. Hello and welcome to another Sourced Property Podcast. I hope you've been well since the last podcast that we did. I hope you've been putting into action some of the useful tips and tricks and hints that we've given you on property. Now, today's podcast is going to be all about peer-to-peer investing. One of the strategies that's really come into the forefront in the last five years or so with property And instead of us going on about peer-to-peer, because you know Steve loves to talk about peer-to-peer investing, instead of us talking about it, we decided to bring in somebody who's invested in our peer-to-peer platform to get their point of view, to get their experience, to get their take on why they invest in property in this way and why they chose to invest in our platform. Now, I'm here today with, uh, it's not just myself from Sourced, Steve is here as well. Hello. But Steve's feeling a little bit poorly. So what's going to happen is Steve's going to be here to ask those really insightful, phenomenal questions that I miss. But he's going to be saving his energy because he's not feeling very well. And our guest, who has been our peer-to-peer investor, is Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hello. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew? Sure. I'm now semi-retired. My main work has been putting together development aid projects in developing countries around the world. And I've been very fortunate. I've worked in over 40 different countries around the world. And it's been an amazing life, really. I still do a bit of that, but not as much as I used to. And have you invested in property in any of those countries? No, 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 no. I mean, because I'm working at government level there, I know too much about the risks involved. And it's never been attractive to me to invest in those places because the rule of law in most of those places is not that great and so courts take usually two three years to resolve things no not for me and so your investment in property has always been in the uk i should say that my investment in property only really started about five years ago until then i was a keen equities and managed futures investor okay so that's what i focused on But what I realized was that as I was getting close towards retirement, I needed to change my risk profile. The problem with equities, as you know, they go up and down like a yo-yo and you can lose 30% or more in one year if the market turns against you. And if it happens to be that time when you actually want the money, you're in deep trouble. And that was unnerving. I mean, usually it would come back again eventually, but it was still unnerving. Managed futures even more risky. So I realized, okay, I need to start looking at other things. And how can I start finding a less risky or a more manageable risk for my investment? That's how I started. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting take that you have on investing in property coming Mm. to it from a much more risky investment class. So when you first started investing in property, what were you looking at? What were you first attracted to? And then how has that evolved over your five years of investing in property? I think I started with one of the other platforms. And what I liked was the idea that I would be participating in a loan, which would be backed by a first charge on a saleable property. So if anything went wrong, the property stood behind that loan, and I could then actually have a pretty good chance of getting my money back because the property could be sold. That was the attraction. And from there, I also did some other loans with other people not on platforms, a Liverpool-based company called Signature Living, who raised money in this kind of way, although they don't now because they've got rather too big. I've got different sources of capital. So I've tried various ways of doing it. And then more recently, I've uh, invested with Sourced. 
in terms of property, was it obviously Signature Living are, are in our more for sort of hotels, commercial? Yes. Was it that, that type? Were, were yes. You, I mean, uh, the, I did two loans with them. One was they wanted to refurb the car parks, particularly under their hotels in Liverpool and places like that. And it was a pretty good return. And they seemed like a company, I went and saw them, and they seemed like a company that were doing very well and growing very fast. And so even though the security was not, as I now realize, as good, actually it worked out fine. I mean, that brings a much bigger question, which is they were offering effectively a corporate guarantee. And I no longer invest on the basis of corporate guarantees because corporate guarantees are very different from a charge registered at the land registry, which is on a specific property. So you're talking now, for our listeners, a first charge on, on a property? That's what I'm looking for now, as a first charge on a property and registered at the land registry. I'm not interested on a corporate guarantee registered at company's house. That's a very different animal. Although I have to say, you have to be really careful in this game because there are plenty of people out there who are advertising investments which they say are property-backed but when you look at it, it's actually a corporate guarantee on a company that today has properties on its books. But of course, tomorrow it may not. So it's very, very different in terms of the risk from when you actually have a first charge on a property registered at the land registry, a specific property. And that's the reason that you came back to peer-to-peer -peer That's lending. why I came back to that. Yeah, exactly. Although my experience with Signature Living was very good. They were very good to deal with and it all worked out fine. The money was repaid, no problem. But I realized that the nature of the risk with the corporate guarantee is radically different. And many of the loans that are being offered out there at the moment, when you look at them actually in a bit more detail, actually on the basis of corporate guarantees rather than first charges on land registry. This is getting a bit complicated and technical, but I think it's really important for people who are interested in this kind of investment to understand there's a fundamental difference there. It's not enough to see on the thing, this is property backed. In what way is it property backed? It's a really important distinction. And so obviously having a first charge on a property is something that you look for in your investing right now. Absolutely. Do you have other criteria that you need to fulfill before you're happy to invest? Yes. I think that what I've learned along the way is that actually the nature of the individual project is really, really important. The platform itself is important and I, of course I look at the platform and how it's organised and the kind of documentation and the way in which the loan is structured, that's important. But the actual nature of the property is really important for me. And what I'm looking for generally is what I would call a plain vanilla property. And what I mean by that is it's reasonably easy to value because there have been lots of similar ones sold recently that you can see on Rightmove and places like that. And Consequently, it's relatively easy to sell because there's lots of them and therefore there's probably lots of people who want that kind of plain vanilla property. Something a little bit more esoteric, like a millionaire's property for footballers only, well, that's all very exciting, but you know, there's not such a ready market for that. I'm less inclined to go for that sort of thing. It's interesting you say that straight away, but you're judging your investment based on the exit. Absolutely, because I don't want the trouble of having to go to court or to get my money or whatever. But even if it goes through a receiver, that's going to take another X months to get the money and so on. So I want something which actually is easy to exit because you can sell, sell the stuff for it reasonably easy. The other thing I look for is the quality of the documentation. And this tends to get 
a bit uh, neglected. It sounds a bit boring and it can be, but essentially the documentation, the loan agreement, the trust deed, whatever happens to be the particular documentation, is only there if things go wrong. And if things go wrong, and suppose you have to eventually go to court, then the wording, the detailed wording of that documentation becomes critical. So I have to do my homework and make sure that my risks are covered in the documentation and the documentation is consistent and actually would protect me if the worst came to the worst. So that's the second important thing, I think, really. As I said, the other one, which I've already mentioned, is the quality of the security. I don't think I would ever go for a second charge. I think it's extremely unlikely. I, I want a first charge. I want really something that is also backed, if at all possible, by a personal guarantee. The personal guarantee is not so much that you want to bankrupt the guy if things go wrong, but you want to make sure that he doesn't just walk away if things get difficult because he's got real skin in the game. So these are the sorts of things I'm looking for on the individual project. And so looking at your due diligence, do you have a process that you go through? Because it sounds like you're, you're I do. keen to get into the real detail. I do. Through. I made myself a manual um, several pages long to go through all the different aspects assessing the risk of a particular individual project because, you know, there is risk involved and I want to make sure that I cover it as best I can. And this is one of the reasons, Andrew, we asked you to come on this podcast is because I've dealt with a lot of different investors, as has Chris, and um, you're the first one to come to us with pre-written manual of what to check for, what to look, to cross off. Yeah. I think when we first looked at it, we said, look, you need to publish this because <laughs> this will help investors so much in terms of it really does separate much riskier investments yeah. compared to people that are doing this seriously for the longevity, for the relationship. And, you know, it, it separates them straight away just by simply following this document you've created. And, you know, I think I was the first to say, look, let us publish this for you because this is great. I'd, I'd be very happy for you to publish it. There's nothing that I want to keep secret. And, you know, frankly, the more people get involved in this kind of investment, the better for everybody. And I think it's a terrific type of investment, particularly these days, when if you're looking for something with a regular income, if you're retired or semi-retired, and you're offered less than 1% by the banks, then something like this becomes really attractive. If you've got any kind of interest in finance or in things like that, then you don't mind doing the homework, doing the due diligence to make sure that you get something that's worthwhile. I love the process of it. I love that it's mitigating the risk of you becoming emotional about an investment. Yes. Because no matter what level people are investing yes. on, they can see an investment and all of a sudden they think, yes. oh, that's the one for me. Look, it's beautiful or it's yes. going to be beautiful. That's right. But having a, having a, a process like this yes. really makes you step away, become objective and look at the, the actual detail of the deal. That's a good point because, I mean, one of the things that I learned from being involved in futures trading is that emotion is the worst enemy of the trader. As you see things going against you in the market, you're bound to get emotional. If you buy and sell on that basis, then it's not going to work. You're absolutely right. I think one of the things as well we, we spoke about last, Andrew, was um, what would be a big help in the industry. As I'm sure you're aware, there, there are a number of different platforms, there are a number of different structures, and there are a number of different investment types or opportunities out there. And everybody has their own type of documents, loan notes, loan agreements, etc, etc. It would be brilliant if we could somehow create a universal yes. or, you know, a document that's approved by the FCA yes. and everybody uses that and that would just reduce so much time. I ahead. totally agree with you. In the big loan 
business in the city of London where they're dealing with hundreds of millions of pounds per loan, they have something called the Loan Market Association, which has standard documentation, standard loan agreements. And I've talked to you about this before. I would love to see that happen in your industry so that someone like me, if you put something on your platform, a particular property, and it says standard loan agreement applies, my due diligence is cut by about 70%. Yeah, I don't have to do it because I know that's a standard document. And basically, they are all trying to do the same thing. All of these loan agreements are trying to do virtually the same thing. All of these trust deeds are trying to do the same thing. It's just getting people together, I suppose. That's right. We're part of the UK CFA, and that's something we're putting forward. And there's a Good. number of other platforms that are doing that. Great. Because it benefits us as well. If yes. investors know... You know, we yes. meet this criteria, we yes. work on these standards. I mean, it, it, it's like that's why equities work so well on the London Stock Exchange because you don't have to do all this due diligence if you buy a share. You know, it's all been done for you by the Stock Exchange. It's absolutely bog standard. They can't deviate from it. I know my risks. Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. I agree with you. So, moving on to managing your investments, yes. how do you take care of all the investments that you've made? Well, there isn't an awful lot to do unless something goes wrong. It's nice to be able to monitor what's going on. In the case of a development loan where you're lending money for a property development, which is an area that I particularly like, obviously I do like to monitor progress and make sure that things are on track. Although there's not much I'm going to actively do about it until it goes seriously wrong, God forbid, and then you know I might not get my money back. And then, of course, I have to get involved. But generally, if you're operating through a platform, the platformer or the security trustee has the real job of dealing with things if there's problems, if there's a default or a potential default, if a receiver needs to be brought in or various other things, formal demands need to be met. I don't have to get involved in that. So the managing of it is really not such a big deal during the process. It's really when the money comes back, looking for the next one and repeating the process. That's essentially what it is. So if it's a one-year loan, a year later, I'm going to have the money coming back, hopefully with the interest. I can then think about where I'm going to put that next. And how long does it usually take you to run through your due diligence? Well, I try to do it as quickly as I can because I want to be able to give a quick answer. I also what I want to be able to offer the platform is that I will only have ideally one round of questions because there will be questions that will come up. And so what I'd like to do for my own sake and from the point of view of the platform management is to say, give me all the information I need. I'll look at it within two or three days. I'll give you all my questions on one email and hopefully we can get this sorted within a week. You know, that's the sort of thing. I mean, obviously, if I'm busy with something else, I may miss the opportunity or I may take a bit longer. But that's ideally what I like to be able to do. And so earlier in uh, 2019, after five years of investing in property, you decided to invest with Sourced. I did. So would you like to take us through why you made that decision? What drove that decision? Well, I really like the business model. I like the fact that you as a company came from the property development side and that you've got this network of sources around the country who are looking out for opportunities. And I could see that there were real opportunities in the conversion area, mainly because of the relatively new legislation, which makes it much easier to convert a non-residential property into residential. And the fact that this is a relatively new opportunity area and the shortage of housing is something that probably will be with us for the rest of my life. 
it's a fairly constant reality. And so that looks really good. I like the fact that I can get close to the action. I like the fact that I can get to know the people at Sourced. I like the fact that I can get to know a lot more about the individual project. That gives me a much more confidence. Because with most of the platforms, you're kept at a degree of distance, really. You know, and you have to really rely on what's available on the platform. And if you ring up, you're not going to get someone who knows about that particular project because they're just answering questions. So it's a much more attractive idea. And the fact that you've got all these sources going around, that makes you radically different from any of the other platforms. That means that you've got, if you like, a sales force on the ground, all around the country, looking for opportunities, which will then feed into investment opportunities for me. That's very attractive. Uh, the commercial property that you decided to invest in, which is a commercial to residential yes. conversion, yes, was the Crosby. Yes. So was that purely because it was a commercial to residential? Um, no, I mean, that was one of the things, but I liked the look of it. One of the things I look at is plain vanilla. So this was in a commuter area of Liverpool with a decent train service in. It looked to me like this is not going to be that difficult to sell these apartments when they get made. That's good. <clears throat> I liked the, the solidity of the building. My guess was it was going to stand up to being knocked around a bit. That was attractive too. And I could see that when it was finished, those apartments would probably look and be rather desirable. The other thing that I ought to have said about Sourced is that you stand behind the developers. That's very important. So it's like it, if it's someone who isn't particularly experienced as a developer, that isn't so much of a disadvantage with you, whereas with another platform it might be. Because if they get into difficulties, you stand behind them because they're franchisees. And so, you know, that's part of the service that you offer them. So if he suddenly discovers asbestos all over the thing, you'd help him out. You'd know what to do. You'd been there before. If you discovered dry rot that the survey hadn't discovered or he knocked down a wall that you shouldn't have done, again, you'll probably help them out because you know what you're doing. So that gives me a degree of comfort that the likelihood is that this project will be completed. It's an interesting point you make about going for vanilla projects because yes. your return is fixed, right? Yes. So therefore, the numbers stack up. Yes. You go for something vanilla, you know your yes. percentage chance of, of that project coming off as planned is yes. much, better, much than, better rather than going for something that's yes. a much higher risk. Yeah. You know, and when I started off, I went for non-plain vanilla because, oh, wow, look at that beautiful millionaire's paradise. <laughs> you Are know? you saying you got emotionally attached to... Well, in a sense, I looked at the property and I thought, God, that's so beautiful. I mean, it's <laughs> bound to sell. But of course, the reality is that there's so few people in the market and particularly when the market is going through a difficult time, which it is at the moment because of the uncertainty politically, mm. it means that those millionaire-type properties, they may take a lot longer to get off your books, whereas an apartment for 200000 there's always going to be a demand for it. That's my view. When assessing the loan, it's interesting at the beginning we talked about the exit, and the exit, if you look at our actual funding calls the first thing we talk about is the exit yes because for us we work backwards um, absolutely having a second option with the exit to refinance and we, all, we always kind of look at that and how viable it is and yes we're always entering markets where the rental is so strong that it kind of lends itself sometimes to actually why sell it because we keep it on the books exactly, and, and yeah, rent it get yeah. a great return from it that way yeah absolutely as you say if you've got more than one option on the exit even yeah. better Whereas with the millionaire's property, you know, how are you going to rent that? Yeah. 2000 3000 a month. <laughs>
Have you ever looked at the equity model? I have, but, you know, and, and in years gone by, I probably would have gone for it. Yeah. But I'm deliberately reducing my risk. I know I could make more return. Mm-hmm. I know that. But I want the security of the property. And with an equity share, it's different. You know, you're taking a risk yeah. on the viability of the project. And that demands more of me in terms of due diligence. And it means that I'm taking a different and higher type of risk. So I'm comfortable with regular solid returns, not too exciting. But, you know, at this stage of my life, I can sleep well at night. Yeah. So I think you can hear that Andrew really knows what he's talking about. He's got a phenomenal level of depth and level of experience, both in this and in general investing. So the last question that I have for you is your top five tips when investing, which I'm sure people will find very interesting. Well, they're repeating what I've already said, but I think it's worth emphasizing. Number one, does the business proposition make sense to me as a reasonably intelligent non-specialist and particularly the exit, as Stephen was saying? That's absolutely critical. And that includes the plain vanilla and going for places which are either big conurbations or commuter areas. I tend not to go for rural properties for that reason. Number two, first charge, register the land registry. I would need to be very, very convinced to go outside that. That's what I'm after. And what that means is that, of course, if things go wrong and the guy doesn't pay back, Source can immediately appoint an LPA receiver who can then sell that property and get the money back. And it's not an expensive or difficult process. You don't have to go through the courts. Oh, by the way, I should have said avoiding owner-occupied, because obviously with owner-occupied, you do have to go through the courts quite rightly. But from my point of view, that's much less attractive. Number three Take time and care over the legal documents. It's boring. It takes time. Your eyes go a bit squiffy after a while, legal documents. But, you know, the quality of drafting varies hugely. And so for me, it's worth it because if I ever needed it, oh, my God, if I've missed something really important, I would feel very foolish. Number four, if it's a development loan, insist on tranches. I've done one loan where it wasn't insisted and it didn't go well. What I mean by that is if you've got a loan for £100,000 for the development or a conversion of a property, you don't want the platform or whoever it is to slosh the full 100000 at them in one go. You basically want them to give it in lumps and each lump is dependent on an inspection by a quantity surveyor or someone like that who says, yes, the first stage has been done properly, they're ready to receive the next tranche. That reduces the risk as well, because during the actual process of conversion, the actual saleable value of that property probably goes down for a while before it starts to go up again. And so that's a sensitive time. When you knock things about, you've half knocked it down, and you haven't really got much to show, Who's going to buy the thing off you if things go wrong at that stage? So you really want to make sure that somebody is keeping a tight control on it. Number five, all of this, as you listeners will realize, takes a bit of effort. And it's only worth doing if, like me, you enjoy it. Otherwise, do something simpler. It's amazing the amount of people I speak to as well, uh, particularly when retired, are have a real passion for it. Yes. They really enjoy Yes. We, we do a thing called uh, Invest and Learn, where... Ah. People can invest with us and they can actually monitor the project. They can come and learn something about it. And people love that side yes. of it where 
you learn about projects, you learn about the hurt, and there are hurdles, of course. There yes, are. of course. But you know, people are learning about how they work, and yeah. What the end structures are going to be, and the exits, and lots of different things. Yeah, like that. It's, it's I find it fascinating. I'm just thoroughly enjoying it. Long may that continue. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your experience. Thank you for showing us your documents. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.